Psalm 34. We'll read together the entire psalm. You would follow along with me. David begins in verse 1 by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Here ends the reading of God's word. I did an overview of the book of Ruth last Sunday. Uh, If you weren't here um, and you're part of this church, I'd encourage you to listen to that when you have the opportunity this week to get the uh, 30,000 foot view, so to speak, of the book of Ruth and how the Lord Jesus Christ himself is seen throughout the pages of this beautiful book, as he is throughout the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. This morning we'll look in detail at verses 1 through 5. So let's begin here in reading the Word of God, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. 
Let's pray that the Lord might bless our time together this morning in the study of his word. Glorious Heavenly Father, I thank you once again for the truth that you have granted to those that are yours, your word, the Bible, that you have granted us by grace, your Holy Spirit, to see and to understand, to grasp and retain and be ministered to by your word. We thank you that we see the redeeming love and work of your Son portrayed from Genesis to Revelation, made manifest and consummated at the cross, Calvary, to make your own righteous, to make the church pure, cleansed, forgiven once and for all and forever, justified by faith alone, how we rejoice. And may we this morning understand something of your providential care, your sovereign will and your purposes, which sometimes and oftentimes in this life are very mysterious, beyond our comprehension, and oftentimes very sour to our taste. So help us to understand through this glorious story this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, after this great calamity, Naomi and Ruth travel back to their homeland, back to Naomi's homeland, Bethlehem. And when she arrives, the women in that region start to chit-chat, and they say, is this Naomi? Isn't this Naomi? Is this Naomi who's returned? And when she gets ear of it, she responds in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara, meaning bitter. Title of the message this morning is the mystery of God's bitter providence. Now, when people asked over the last few weeks, what, are we, what book are we going to be studying next? I said, Ruth. And women, for some reason, celebrate this. They love the book of Ruth. Amen, sisters? And when you ask, what is the book about? You know, some will say, well, Ruth is a quiet story of ordinary people going about their ordinary, quiet lives. That's true. Others will say, no, the stories of a woman who suffers great loss, much hardship, but finally in the end she's won over by peace and security. And that is also true. Others will say, no, Ruth is about Ruth, the woman who attaches herself to Naomi and thereby attaches herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God. And of course, others will say, no, no. The story is about the male lead of the story, and his name is Boaz. After all, he's the redeemer, he's the close relative, and he, through the leveret marriage and the kinsman redeeming law, buys back to himself Naomi, Ruth, and Elimelech's land. So the story is about Boaz. Boaz. 
That's true as well. But more than anything else, beloved, the book of Ruth is about God. The entire Bible is about God, amen? It's about God. It is about God dealing with ordinary people and their ordinary, everyday matters in extraordinary ways. That's who the book is about. Bringing together the calamities and the very sorrows of life under the sway of his providence. Once more showing us that God's purposes are always, always, always good for those that are his and called according to his purpose. Being conformed to his image. And such is the case with Naomi, who takes our attention this morning. And how God is active in the affairs of those who are created in his image. Now, this book, the book of Ruth, is, is a literary masterpiece. The way it is written, of course, by divine inspiration. In chapter 1 and paragraph 1, it's designed to provide for us the sequential order of the experiences of God's providence in the lives of these people. Whereas in the concluding chapter and paragraph, God provides answers to the mysteries verses 1 through 5. In the first chapter, first paragraph, it's the time of the judges when Israel had no king. In the closing chapter, last paragraph, we see God's provision for Israel's greatest king, David, who was yet to come. First chapter, first paragraph, introduces for us Elimelech, from Bethlehem and Ephrathite. And in the last chapter, last paragraph, introduces for us, again, God's future king, David, from Bethlehem and Ephrathite. So from bitter providence to sweet sovereign providential restoration, Ruth is a story about God's providence. Now, providence is closely related to God's sovereignty, and we do, as Christians, use those terms interchangeably. They are quite different. God's sovereignty speaks of God's predetermined purpose established in eternity past, and there's nothing in this world, there is no person, there is nothing can slow it down, nothing can stop it, nothing will change the course of God's preordained sovereign plan, cut and dry, it is established, and it was established in eternity past within the Trinitarian God that we serve. Providence, on the other hand, speaks of God's working out those predetermined purposes in time. Through events, circumstances, and people. Working His sovereign purposes out through, through the rigors and the routine, routine of everyday life. Through much pain, through sorrow, through joy, all being worked out. And at the outset here, we witness the bitter side of providence. Now, we experience the sweet providence of God every day. We may not acknowledge it. We may not even recognize it because we are so yet sinful in our flesh. (laughs) The fact that you're healthy enough to get up in the morning and go to work and still have a job, the providential care of God. 
When there's an accident on the freeway and there just happens to be a registered nurse behind the incident who's able to attend to the person who would die had she not been there to resuscitate him and bring him to life until the paramedics arrive. Providence of God. Divine appointments. Those things that, wow, just so happen to happen. You know, those coincidental situations in our lives. That is all the providential hand of God being worked out in our lives and through our lives. Very sweet, sometimes very bitter. Now, there's a view of God today that often goes unspoken uh, that believes that he is indeed in charge of the big things. Major things in life, major events, you know, those defining moments in history that, yeah, God's in charge of that stuff. But it is less clear to those people that he's in control of everything outside of that. Every detail of life. Jesus said that his father sovereignly watches over every sparrow and every flower. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater, and he says, as I paraphrase, if God cares for even those things, which are of little value on the eternal scale of things, will he not care for you? You, who are of much greater value? The answer is yes, he will. Of course he will. Now, the sad truth is that science today has taught many undiscerning and very immature believers to adopt an aversion, a version of God who think of God as you know, the God of the gaps theory. You know, like God spoke everything to existence or he created a big bang and the big bang happened. That's God just winding this thing up and letting it go, chugging along in life and here's everything. He sets it into motion. He just kind of steps back and folds his arm and, and rests. Those people who believe that, they do carry a disclaimer in their pocket that acknowledges that, yes, he does every once in a while intervene, and when he does, and it's clearly made visible, we'll call that a miracle. You hear that? Those are miracles, they say. But biblically speaking, beloved, those kind of views are nonsense. Ridiculous. God has without doubt created and ordered this universe. He spoke this universe into existence. However, the biblical view of his sovereignty and of his providence is that every second he is sustaining this universe and his people within this universe. He's committed, deeply involved. But here in the life of this Israelite woman, Naomi, God's providence, once again, proves to be very bitter in more ways than one. So the bitter side of God's providence is revealed both generally, in a broad sense, and very specifically, very individually in Naomi's life. So what I want to look at are the three aspects of God's providence that are being worked out in a very general sense or a broad sense in and through the life of this woman. And then we'll look at the three aspects that follows those general aspects of his providence that are very personal. And my encouragement and my hope is that by the end of this, although just like Naomi, she couldn't see around the corner as to what was happening. In the end, 
All you got to do is read the last chapter. God's providence becomes very sweet. Very sweet. So let's look at the first aspect. It's very general, very broad. Number one is that Naomi lived in the dismal days of the judges. Verse one. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Now, this historical time frame that's provided for us right there in verse one is not only is merely there to point uh, to you know the moment in history in which Naomi and Elimelech and their sons lived life. It's rather a theological description as to the character of the time. It was very perverted. They were appointed to live in this day, the days of the judges. If you, took back, if you turn back one page to Judges 21-25, we read that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a day much like today. You can believe in Jesus, that's okay. You can bring your Jesus into our conversations, but don't you dare say he's the only way. And do not dare go beyond that and say that our way is not the right way. Truth is relative today in the minds of many, many people. And unfortunately, I, was, I mean, I was at a conference yesterday that was being led by scholars of our day to say this very thought, this very framework is entering into the church and being accepted. Can you believe it? Do you realize that? In professing churches, the truth is relative? Justification by faith alone? Doesn't save alone? Here she lived in the time of the judges. Now, throughout Judges, if you're familiar with it, you know that there's this repeated cycle of rebellion followed by God's judgment. At the beginning of each cycle, we see people's sin rising up. Moral anarchy, perverted idolatry. And then God enters the scene. He takes these rebels and he chastens them. He chastens them, they cry out for mercy. And then God would appoint a judge, a deliverer. Because what God would do in dealing with his people is he would set up another nation, an enemy nation, pagans who hate God, and he would preordain and allow them to enter into the scene to judge his very people. They would cry out and then he'd judge them. Who's sovereign, by the way, in all things? God is. After a time, the people would break God's covenant again, finding themselves oppressed once again, and that cycle would repeat itself Seven times. And to get a snapshot of this, we can look at Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot that the Lord their, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathim, 
Then the land had rest for 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they'd done evil in the sight of the Lord. So from the first judge, Othniel here, who's an honorable judge, to the likes of Samson, who's the last official judge, who, by the way, systematically broke every vow ever made on his behalf as a Nazarite, (laughs) to where Samson so compromised and became so self-confident that in Judges chapter 16 and verse 20, after Delilah had seduced him, you know, he had some problems with women. He had a lust issue. And here he is with a foreign woman. She lulls this man to sleep and tries to pull out of him information regarding his strength. Where does his strength lie to inform the Philistines in that they could come over and overtake this man? Well, he tricked her numerous times and they call the Philistines and he break free from whatever and, you know, destroy them. Well, he finally gave up the secret. And in Judges 16 verse 20, He awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times and I will shake myself free. But here, beloved, is one of the most frightening scriptures in all of the Bible. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and they gouged out his eyes. And you know the rest of the story. He threshed wheat for the rest of his life. A grinding mill. And then God used him one more last time to destroy the Philistines. So needless to say, this was a very dark and spiritually dreary time for Naomi and Elimelech. This is the time for which they were married. This is the time that was preordained for them to live and the place for which they were to live. Did they have any control over that? No, they did not. Now, another aspect of this bitter time of God's providence Um, also over earthly matters, is that Naomi suffered famine in the land. Verse 1, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And in verse 2 it says that these were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. So this famine saying here in the land is is an Old Old Testament language for the land of Israel. The land of Israel the land of Israel. I mean, how befitting is this? There's a famine in the land of Israel, specifically here in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, means house of bread. It's in Judah. Judah means praise. So here you have a famine in the house of bread and in the place of praise. So here, in the midst of debauchery and idolatry and immorality and defied authority, God strikes the land with famine. Which means Bethlehem, being an an, an agrarian culture, there was no living to be made. No crops to be harvested. No water. And this was no mere drought of just a few months or a couple hot summers. This went on for years. Miserable years. So in the time and the territory allotted to Naomi, according to God's sovereign will predetermined plan for these people, she suffers in the midst of both spiritual and a literal drought. There's a spiritual famine in the land, there's a literal famine in the land. And here she lives with her husband, Elimelech. 
Now, what he's doing is he's working out by way of his providential care and control his plan for his covenant people. The plan is much, much bigger than Naomi, beloved. This is the redemptive line of Jesus Christ that will be established through all this loss. So she does not see this. She cannot know this. And our mighty Lord, beloved, is working out his plan for you. You are a part of his covenant people. And when you face calamity like this, we can rest and trust in the fact that, yes, God is sovereign. We are under his sovereign hand, his sovereign plan, within his providential care. He's loving, he's merciful, he's graceful. We will suffer in this time. And that, beloved, is one of the reasons we need one another in the body of Christ. When I go through times like this, I want to hear truth. I want to be reminded of objectivity, the objective truth of God that comes, by the way, from outside of us, you see. The truth isn't down here. You don't want to go searching for truth here because subjectively, because you're involved subjectively, we have the ability to distort truth. So we have to go outside of us and it's right here. We remind one another of these things. We pray according to this truth while we suffer in the midst of such calamity as did Naomi. Thirdly, in the midst of all of this, time of the judges, in the midst of famine, Naomi was forced now to move away from the land of promise. Verse 1b, And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. In verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and they remained there. Now this is interesting because there's a progression in the words here, sojourn in the land of Moab. Sojourn, to stay for a short time. As Christians, what are we, beloved? Sojourners, pilgrims. This is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Justified, sanctified, one day to be glorified. So we are sojourners. Our, our stay here is very short. You could be, live to be 100. I've lost two dear people in my life in the last two weeks. One was 45. The other was 90. No man knows what tomorrow may bring, amen? He holds his, your breath in his hand. So we are sojourning. We are pilgrims. But in verse 2, though they sojourned into the land, it says in verse 2 that they entered the land of Moab and they remained there, meaning to become. To be. And then in verse 4, it says they lived there, meaning that they settled. They settled down there. So let's put ourselves in the sandals of this Naomi. Here she is, living at the time of judges. There's a spiritual famine in the land, living in the time of, of a uh, fa- um, famine in the land, spiritually and physically, literally. And now she has to up and move. Now, unless you've moved, say, cross-country or a couple states, you know there's a lot of work involved in that. I moved cross-country twice in 13 months. It's very stressful. And it's very expensive. It severs relationships. Think about this. In this day, you didn't, you couldn't text mama. 
You couldn't email mama. You couldn't pick up the phone and, and call your son or your daughter. You're, you're severing relationships here. You don't know how long you're going to be gone. You don't even know if you'll see them again. Or talk to them again. So the, the splitting of lifelong relationships along with having to start new ones causes this sense of nervousness because of the unpredictability of all of it moving away like this. In, in this case, she's forced to move away to not only another land, but of another language. False religion. That's where she's moving. Having to endure race, racial tension. And more than all else, she has to leave the land that God promised to bless. So here she is. The land which God, under the old covenant, had given Israel. So from the perspective of an old covenant believer, leaving the land, this was as bad as it could get. So then you got all that tension to deal with. Now, here they are going to Moab. Now, as I said last week, you could stand on a ridge in Bethlehem and look over the Dead Sea, and you could see the hills of Moab. 3,500 feet above sea level. They received 16 inches of rain a year. They would look green, they would look plush, and they would appear to be very inviting in the time of famine. Elimelech decides to lead his family. Men called the shots. She has to go. So here's the stress of the moving. Here they are going into Moab of all places. And it's been said of Moab that Moab and the Moabites, became, they began in a cave and they ended in the grave. They literally began in a cave. You remember the story of Lot? Lot dwelt in Sodom. God sent angels to Sodom to tell Lot, get the family and get out. Judgment is imminent. He lollygags around, dilly-dallies around. God sends an angel. He grabs Lot by the hand. He says, get out. So he, his wife, his two daughters, their husbands, didn't believe they were destroyed. They're heading out. God said, don't even look back. Lot's wife, what? Looked back. Judged immediately. Turned into a pillar of salt. They didn't look. They just kept on a-running. They end up in a cave. The daughters, instead of trusting God, they fear that they will have no lineage. They will have no children to carry on the name. So, they get their father drunk. And what you have there is an, an incestuous, an incestuous uh, relationship between the two daughters and the father, Lot, in a cave. And conception of the Moabites began in this cave because Genesis 19.37 says, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the son of Amnon to this day. So the Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot during this two-night drunken incestual Relationship, incestuous relationship. So Lot is the great backslider of the day, you see. But when you get to heaven, you will see Lot. 
because the Bible says through Peter that he was a man who was a righteous man. And as a matter of fact, when I used to drop my children off at Christian school, I know better than to think that if you just push your kids off into a Christian school, that they're not going to be heavily influenced by a bunch of kids who aren't Christians anyhow. So hoping and declaring the gospel to your own children, you send them off. And I used to say to my kids, I said, Beloved, as I would drop them off, remember this. Remember who you are. Sinner saved by grace. Covered by the blood of the Lamb. Remember, remember whose you are. You are Christ's. Bought at a great price. And thirdly, remember Lot. Because Peter informs us that Lot was a righteous man whose righteous soul was tormented day by day by the things he saw and the things he heard. Where did he dwell? Sodom. In Sodom. So here you have the Ammonites and the Moabites, a product of and this incest between Lot and his two daughters. A sinful, terrible time, a very ugly time in redemptive history. Nevertheless, it happened. And God, again, has a sovereign purpose for all of this sin as well. Now, the Ammonites were a nomadic people. Drifters, like gypsies, moved from camp to camp. And, and what the Ammonites represent in this world is, is the open and undisguised hostility of the enemy against God's people. The Moabites, on the other hand, were a little different. They were more settled, they were very civilized, and they were much more subtle in their approach against God's people. It was Moab, if you recall, who hired a false prophet to curse God's people through Balaam to corrupt God's people. Now, Balaam's advice was this. Look, you're not going to be able to subdue these people, Moab. You will not subdue the people of God. So... My recommendation is, as though you can't subdue them, seduce them. Let's use the women. Don't rely on the men of Moab to conquer the people of God. Use the women of Moab to corrupt the people of God. And that's exactly what happened. So in Scripture, the Moabites represent for us this sinful world's hospitality towards, towards God's people. They throw the, mel- the welcome mat out, and they say, come, come hither, enter, enter into our gates. We welcome you. Now, we know that the, da- the world is always a dangerous place for a believer to dwell without the whole armor of God, Amen. but never more so when the world extends the right hand of fellowship and friendship to the unbeliever and the, or to the believer and the believer shakes hands and they're pulled in because the world says come join our lodges join our clubs join our fraternities enjoy your lifestyle because our lifestyle is much more free than yours we know we know come on in Compromise with our gods. Now, we don't demand that you worship our gods, but we will say this at the outset. Do not preach against our gods. You can bring your Jesus, that's okay. But don't say that he's the only way. 
And don't tell us that we're worshiping someone false and we'll welcome you. Relativism. So they began in a cave, Moab did. They end in a grave. Desolation. Through Zephaniah, God said, chapter 2, verse 8, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Amnon, with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Amnon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. In the New Testament, to the church of Pergamum, the Lord Jesus Christ warned that church and he said, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of who? Of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. There's churches like this today. They entertain the world's beliefs within the walls of the professing church. Jesus plus something. Or Jesus and. So here is Moab, in which Naomi lived with her husband and her two sons. Now, moving away from Bethlehem, moving away from the house of bread, moving away from Judah, the place of praise, you know, there's a famine there in the house of bread. There's a famine in the place of praise. This provides for us, beloved, a a, a great point of application. Sometimes Christians can come to this house of bread or their home church. They can come to this house of bread. They can come to this place of praise And as they gather in together, they begin to think like this. If only the church would implement this, if only the church would do that, as a matter of fact, if only the church wouldn't do this and that, then I'd be freed up to worship. Then I'd be free to praise. If only we were more liturgical then I could worship freely because then we'd be much more uh, reformed. You know, if we cited more creeds, and there's nothing wrong with citing, reciting the creeds, but perhaps if we did this, you know, then I would have more worship flowing out of me. I'd be set free. Or on the other end of that, you'd have people that say, you know, we're too liturgical. You know, if only we were more charismatic. You know, if only I could talk back when the pastor's preaching or get up behind and go, or things like that, then I'd be set free to praise God. Or others, you know, we need to establish contemplative prayer stations. You know, we need to go within. Or we need to establish internal spiritual formations. And then if we do these things, we're focusing here within, you see. Because here's where the truth is. Beloved, the truth isn't in here. The truth gets into here, but it comes from outside of us. And if we go in here, you see, as I said earlier, we have a tendency because we still have sin that we deal with and our flesh that we deal with, we can corrupt the truth. Therefore, we need objective truth heralded in being reminding one another of this, not how you feel in the midst of this situation. Amen? All of that contemplative stuff and internal spiritual formations, all that type of thing is really rooted in Eastern mysticism. 
inevitably, if there's no praise and there's no worship and, and, and there's no uh, uh, being settled in my deepening relationship with Jesus Christ because I'm justified through my sanctification, that means there's a famine in here, inside. So don't go looking for deeper truth here. Repent of what's ever going on here according to what this says. That's what we remind one another of, beloved. Because it's here that we become vulnerable and we'll end up doing what Elimelech did. We go where it looks greener. Right? We wash our hands of this church and we're moving on to another. Because someone grabbed my ear. They started to bend my ear. And they started to sow seeds of discord in my heart. And you know what? I think you've got a point there. And then we're swayed, blown, what? To and fro. So Elimelech here leaves with his family from Bethlehem, the house of bread, and he goes to Moab, the place of the dead. False gods. So there they were in Moab existing, perhaps just drifting through life. It became much more permanent than they ever imagined. Same with the same is true with us, amen? You look at the green look at the green hills of Moab. You know, the grass is always greener, right, as they say. So we head to Moab. And we're only going to spend a few days here, right? And days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and months turns into years. And then a decade later, you're wringing your hands, pulling out your hair, going, what on earth have I done? <laughs> what have I done? Who did I listen to? It wasn't the objective truth of God. So as bad as this bitter providence seemed for Naomi in a broad sense, it now begins to hit much much closer to home. So here we see the very personal side of God's bitter providence. Fourthly, her husband dies. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, the name Elimelech means, my God is king. Naomi, pleasant or sweet. So he leaves the place of fellowship, and in his mind, he had good reason. My family isn't getting fed, so we're leaving. And I suppose if Elimelech lived today, he'd be your proverbial church hopper. Never satisfied. Never satisfied within the gathering of God's people. If there's something here, there'll be something there. So Naomi now suffers as a widow. And, you know, how dark that must have been for her. I mean, imagine, here she is in Moab. No one came knocking on the door in Moab to Naomi's stoop here, comforting her by, the way, by citing living scripture. These are Moabites. No one sat with her and prayed with this bereaved family because they serve false gods. Not the one true God. I'm sure some neighbors stopped by and gave some pagan cliches and, you know, pinch on the cheek and slap on the back. 
But she's just suffered the greatest loss. The greatest loss that we suffer in life here on earth is the loss of a spouse, the one that you're one with. This is a terrible time. This is deep pain, great heartbreak. And then after time, I'm sure her sons take over and they provide. And then all of a sudden, some relief comes. Here's a joyous season on the horizon. Verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, 10 years after all this. Now, I'm sure it probably passed through her mind that, hmm, it was the Moabite women that deceived my forefathers. (laughs) Right? But with all she'd been through, any kind of happiness at this point is acceptable. Have you been there? I've been there. I'll take it. Man, I'll take it. I need some relief. So not only do you have new relationships, now you have an extended family, and now there's a new sense of hope because with a husband and a wife, now there's a hope of children. Children are a joy. Now we have a future. Our family has a future. We have a lineage to carry on our family name. My husband's dead, but here my boys are. Now they're married. So she rejoices. I can imagine she praises Yahweh. And can we not all relate to the fact that she very well may have said, praise you, Lord, you haven't forsaken me after all. You haven't forsaken me. Thank you for this mercy. But then her time of relief is cut short. And more bitter providence enters the scene. Number five, her sons die. Verse five, then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Here you have a widow living in a man's world. She's stripped of her closest kin, her boys. You have children, you know the love between a parent and a child. She's lost her husband, and now her boys. Not only is she stripped of her closest kin, she's now stripped of her identity, beloved. Her very identity. Without her husband or her son, she has no name. She's nameless. Notice, then both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi, it doesn't say Naomi was bereft, it says the woman. The woman. So, number six, although this is implied, Naomi's hope of family successor seems destroyed at this point. This is what you lived for. A future. A family. A bloodline. In verse five, the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband, meaning she was left without. You can only imagine what's going through this woman's mind. There's no one to carry on our name. No husband, no son. It's going to be like, it's going to be as though they never lived at all. They're just, they're back to the dust. We're childless. And no doubt she asked, God, why have you done this? Verse 20 says that she came back saying, God has dealt bitterly with me. She lifted her hands and said, why? No doubt about it, I'm sure. Is this because Elimelech left Judah for Moab, Lord? Am I suffering the consequence of my my husband's sin? I don't know. Is it because I allowed my sons to take Moabite women as wives? I don't know. 
I prayed, Lord, that my husband would return to the house of bread. I was quiet. I didn't want to be contentious. Is this your judgment? Now, it's very important to note something here. The author of Ruth nowhere interjects, and he would have opportunity, paragraph by paragraph, paragraph, to interject and give reason as to the calamities that came upon Naomi. But he doesn't. So we cannot read directly into the text that God was working out disciplinary action upon this woman because of her husband, because of the Moabite women, or whatever. It doesn't say that. What we do know as we read the last chapter, he was doing something much greater that was beyond her comprehension. Amen? Far greater. So we mustn't automatically assume that the afflictions that we suffer in life or that someone else suffers in life are automatically the result of unrepentant sin in one's life. Amen? It could be. And sometimes it is. There's no doubt about that. We just read Judges, amen? (laughs) And for whom God loves, he chastens. But the bitter hard providence of God is much easier to live with when we know that we've been rebelling and we know that we are the Lord's and because we are the Lord's and we're bought at a great price and we are his children and we have rebelled, therefore this providential bitterness is his chastening hand because he loves us. That's much easier to handle than this. There's no rhyme or reason to this, Lord. Why? You know, the Apostle Paul's bitter experience of providence wasn't due to sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7, if you remember, he was uh, given um, a, a, a great blessing in seeing the third heaven. And in chapter 12, it says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me in order to keep me from sinning, (laughs) exalting myself. So Paul was given right here, according to the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, Torment, the torment of Satan, a thorn in his flesh, which he asked to be removed three times, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient. This wasn't because of sin, it was to keep him from sin. So if you're currently in such a place, beloved, when you, or when you do, and if you're a Christian, you will eventually find yourself in, in, in an unexplainable situation. We all will. I have two thorns in my flesh this day. Two individuals that are thorns to me. And I don't know why. But what I've had to settle down and understand is what I preach. God is sovereign. And there's nothing in your life that's not there for a greater purpose, for his glory first and foremost, and for my good in the long run. So I have to sit back and go, okay, what is it you want me to learn from this? I may not even know this side of eternity. Always remember, when you're in this place, beloved, the Lord, you're His. He's forever gracious to His own. He's forever loving to His own. He's forever merciful and always, always, always good. Graciously good. 
So Naomi, although she'd been tattered and deeply grieved through the bitter providence of God, she wasn't consumed, was she? She's still breathing. And as you read the last chapter, you know the abundant blessings that are coming her way. Lamentations, Jeremiah says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Now, the context there is God's willingness to start afresh with those that have been sinning deeply who repent. So that context, someone who sins is a child of God, he'll renew them. Even though God's people know him truly, our knowledge is partial, amen? Our knowledge of God is partial. Our, our, Our understanding of God is imperfect. We live by faith, according to the objective truth of his word. So because he is wise in all his ways, we can take comfort in hardship and tragedy. And you see, that's why the church is important as well. We corporately join together. And you see, what this does for us, it's in one of the songs that we worship together this morning. The lyric said, we, we pray that the cross will be new to us every day. That I will see the cross as I did for the first time. Remember how excited you were when God saved you? Or if you were saved at a young age, how excited you were when you began to realize the price of the salvation for which he provided you in eternity past? And how sometimes it wanes or it wears off and you don't rejoice so much over the cross. It's times like this that we remind one another of the cross. We take one another back to Calvary. So Naomi was experiencing God's providence that was far beyond her capacity to understand at this point. But as the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet on Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just this week, um, I've been corresponding with a friend of mine who I've known quite a long time. And her husband is going to leave her at this point for someone else. Her husband served in ministry some time ago. Her husband was gifted. Her husband was able to communicate the truth of the gospel with clarity and with Holy Spirit power, seemingly. And is denying the faith. An apostate. One who turns away. And she wrote this to me. One line from our correspondence. John, in the pew, trusting him seems so easy. But when the rubber meets the road, it's an entirely different story. But I know, I know, I know it's always worth it when you come out the other side. You know why she says that? Because she is in the word every day, embracing the truth. 
God's grace is being poured out upon her in this time. Did God cause this man to do that? Of course not. Every human being was responsible for what they do and why they do it in the end. It's through all this that he works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Another sister I spoke with this week on Tuesday night from here, she said, I found a wonderful way to deal with the trials in my life that keep me from being depressed. Because if you focus on your trials and you focus on what's going inside, who wouldn't be depressed? And that is this, she said, ministering to others who are going through trials of their own. Pretty simple. Pretty biblical, amen? Very churchy. Church-like. That's what we do. We mourn with those who mourn. We grieve with those who grieve. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to one another. We recite scripture to one another. We pray for one another. We don't always have to give advice to one another, but we can pray for one another. Amen? So God's providence is sometimes very hard. And in the short, in the short run here, God did deal bitterly with Naomi. And her theology was spot on. God has dealt very bitterly with me. That's a mature Christian. Some say, no, it was, it was going to Moab that produced all this. Others will say, no, they married wives. They weren't to do that. That's why the Lord did this. Not necessarily. Aaron read from Psalm thirty-four, nineteen this morning. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but... The Lord delivers him out of them what? Out of them all. It might be when you enter heaven, but you'll be delivered from them all. It's a guarantee. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God's people will escape affliction in this life. As a matter of fact, you remember when Paul was stoned? He was stoned many times. He was beaten with rods. He was flogged. He was whipped. He was chained. One of the times he was stoned, they left him for dead. He probably did die. That could be the time that he went to the third heaven. Who knows? Well, when he rose up in Acts 14.22, he enters the city. Notice what he does. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. More than anything else, beloved, when you go through these things, remember this, the one who suffered the most deserved it the least. Jesus Christ. Therefore, did you get that? The one who suffered the most deserved it the least. Therefore, there is no direct correlation to suffering and behavior. So again, the author of Ruth does not interject, does not provide for us the basis of Naomi's pain or loss. But let's just say for a moment that her suffering was a result of sin and that it was, was a result of this compromise. And if it was, then that makes the story double, doubly encouraging. And as John Piper has noted, 
the reason that it's so much more wonderful and splendid is that it shows that God is willing and able even to turn his judgments into joy. So, Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, would become the grandmother of David, ancestor of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that in in verse 5 of chapter 1, let me get back to Ruth here, it mentions her two children, your translation might say sons, that's translation of a word that means basically babies. Here's a woman, this is describing kind of an odd term for two grown men with wives. These are her babies. In verse 3, the word sons means builders of the family name. And what's interesting is when we get to chapter 4, she nurses Obed, the child of Ruth that she had with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. They lay him in her lap. And she nurses that child. And that child would go on to father Jesse. And Jesse would father David. And David was the bloodline to the Messiah. Do you think she knew that this was going on? Behind the clouds? No. So if this is the case with you, if perhaps the chastening hand of God has come upon you because of sin, Don't think that your sin of the past means no hope for the future. Amen? So, I mean, what if God's bitter providence in your life is working itself out to produce or make you the ancestor of the next George Whitfield, the next Charles Spurgeon, the next James Boyce, the grandmother of David through the kinsman redeemer Boaz we just don't know do we but what we do know is this and I close with this four conclusive facts regarding God's purposes over our lives that we see from the text number one is that God the almighty rules over all things sovereignly and providentially. He's in control, beloved, of everything. From the sparrow that falls to the ground to the detailed affairs of our lives, be they bitter or sweet, God is in control. And Naomi was right, again, in knowing who it was that caused this. And it was all for the good, as you read the last chapter. Secondly, God's providential steering of our lives is mysterious. This is very mysterious. If you put yourself here, this is mysterious happenings. Who wouldn't shake their head and wonder why? Through many tribulations, Paul said, we will enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a what kind of creator? Faithful creator. He is so faithful, so merciful. And just remember this, whatever you're going through, someone is going through something much, much worse, and it can always be worse, regardless of what it is. Thirdly, 
God's purposes are for the good of those who love him and are called to him. He works together all things, Romans 8, 28, for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And what was Paul's purpose? Jesus told him, bring Paul to me. I must show him the things that he must what? Suffer for my namesake. The greatest apostle. The one we quote more often than all others. The one who suffered the most. And then fourthly, ultimately, God's providential purposes in our lives are ultimately for, beloved, the glory of Jesus Christ. For his glory. The glory of Christ is the glory of grace, which was fully revealed on Calvary's cross. The one who deserved it the least bore the most suffering that we'll never fathom. You know what it's for? To expiate your sin, remove it as far as the east is from the west, and to justify you, to make you perfectly holy in position, cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, to set you apart, sanctify you as a holy people, and to work into you that salvation, he commands that we work it out with trembling and fear. Because heaven is your home. Your citizenship is there and you will be glorified one day. And that's why he suffered as he did to set you free from sin and death. The gospel. The good news. So he didn't come merely to die. He came born under the law to uphold the law in perfect obedience to the Father and then lay his life down as a sacrifice. So he had to come and uphold the law and then to lay his life down as a sacrifice to set you free and to give you eternal life. So 1,000 years after this bitter trial, the sweet blessing of promise was giving, was given rather, in fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Because it was 1,000 years later they would hang on Calvary's cross. Promised here through this bloodline. But she had to get back to Bethlehem. And she had to bring a Moabitess, a Gentile woman, to be redeemed by Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, to buy this woman and bring her unto himself so they could bear Obed. Who would have Jesse? Who would have David? And I close with this reading in Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before, beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning, concerning his son, who was bor- born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God, with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace, beloved, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom also you are the called of Jesus Christ. That's why. Painful? Bitter? Yeah? 
But in a few weeks ago, we'll get to the sweet end of this. The sweet providence of God. When she enters into Bethlehem, and she sees Boaz. She sees a field. And Ruth will go glean there. And she'll be married to the kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing us the divine inspired word of God. We thank you that from Genesis to Revelation we see your son his redeeming work being foreshadowed through and through. Consummated upon the cross at Calvary. Paying for our sin, buying us back, our great kinsman redeemer, purchasing us off the slave box of sin and death and a destiny of hell. Making us right, making us your own through your son Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that everyone here would would have a new sense of hope. Those who are struggling that have no answers at this point as to why they're suffering your bitter providence. Lord, I pray that uh, they would resort to going to the scriptures and leaning on your promises, uh, ministering to one another, encouraging one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Going back to the objective truth and not being swayed into subjectivity and moved all about and perverting the truth that we we know into something else. But strengthen us, encourage us, and, and bless us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit in and through our lives according to your word. Bless your people this day, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to close out, if you would stand, we're going to sing a hymn. And in every line of this great hymn, the title of which is God Moves in a Mysterious Way, it was wit- written by William Cooper. William Cooper suffered with deep bouts of depression. Suicidal kind of guy in his mind. And God provided him a brother in Christ by the name of John Newton, a former slave trader, a man who was broken under the same gospel that Cooper was broken under, the same gospel you were broken and saved under. And Newton spent time with Cooper, and he would always take him back to the cross always continually taken back to the gospel. In speaking of God's providence, Cooper wrote this glorious hymn. Here's a couple lines. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Shall we sing that together as we go out this morning? God bless you.